Uh, well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Nick Timoros. I cover economic policy and the Federal Reserve for the Wall Street Journal. I'm uh, thrilled to be moderating this afternoon's panel. Uh, we will be uh, discussing digital currency, competition, and monetary policy. And you can submit questions for the second half of our discussion uh, via uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Slido using the hashtag uh, CatoMonCon. And joining me today for our discussion, we have Jesus Fernandez Villaverde, a professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania. We have George Selgin, who is the director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives here at the Cato Institute. We have David Andolfato, who is a senior vice president at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And we have Dong He, who is the deputy director at the IMF Monetary and Capital Markets Department. So thank you to all of our esteemed panelists for joining us today. A reminder again, you can submit questions for our discussion after the panelists make their presentations using the hashtag CatoMonCon. And with that, I will turn the floor over to, to Jesus for our first presentation. Jesus, the floor will be yours. And I, I think Jesus, you're, you're uh, muted. Uh, thank you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Wonderful. So thanks for inviting me. And um, I have been working on cryptocurrencies and central bank digital currencies for a few years now. So I thought I could frame my remarks started by starting thinking about uh, explaining how I envision money. And this is a long story that, uh, but that most of you are probably already familiar with. Because of the, of the division of labor, we need to trade among us. And since trade through barter is unfeasible, in particular intertemporal trade, we need to come up with a way to accomplish trades. And the way most societies have accomplished this goal is by using the centralized net balance ledger systems, which are expressing tokens. So when I give you a token, and we are going to call this token money, what I'm really representing is I'm getting something out of society, for instance, the product of your work, and I'm giving you a token that you can use to represent the fact that you have a net positive position and you can give it to someone else. So in that sense, you can think about money as an informationally efficient record-keeping mechanism that allows for decentralized trading under frictions to trade, under essential frictions to trade. And this definition has a number of interesting implications. And for my remarks today, I would like to highlight three. First is that money is created every time we engage in a decentralized ledger. This can be through uh, private monies or it can be through public monies, but money is created all the time by individuals. The tokens in which this decentralized layer operates can be inherently worthless, or they can represent claims to assets. And these tokens may have different degrees of moneyness. And the third implication, which is the one that I think is the most important for our discussion today, is that whoever says money, says trade fictions. Money exists because there are trade frictions. Why is this so important? Because this is not a situation where we can assume by default that markets are going to deliver a good outcome in the same way that we can assume with a reasonable degree of certainty that the market is going to deliver good outcomes, for instance, for the production of pencils. 
And once we do not believe that markets by default will deliver a good outcome, we need to think about what are the best society arrangements for, for money. And those can involve private money or they can involve public money. In particular, we need to recall that historically, money was really created by private agents. Commodity monies started by the individual decisions of agents who started using tokens to get around the trade frictions I was mentioning before. And that coinage was only taken over by government quite later in the history of the development of money. And that the money that we are most used today, which is fiat money issued by some type of central bank, is nothing more than consoles with zero nominal coupon that we can use to trade and to accomplish this type of settlement in transactions. But there are many other ways in which we uh, accomplish uh, these, uh, these trades. And by the way, this helps us to think about many issues which perhaps have already come up this morning or that come up later today. Like for instance, the rem reminding ourselves uh, that there is such a thing as a laffer curve of seniorage, that you can get a little bit of revenue as a government by printing more money, but that there is a laffer curve, the peak on that seniorage is actually uh, quite close by, and that the words legal tender is something that our friends in law school may enjoy a lot, but that they don't really mean much from the perspective of economics. And that we have plenty of evidence of many, many examples of many, many cases. And my favorite one, which I always explain when I'm teaching to my undergrads is the Swiss dinar that was traded in the north of Iraq for the longest time, that not only was traded without any type of legal tender, but actually against the active um, a punishment by the government that wanted the Iraqi government who didn't want people to use the Swiss dinar. Okay, and in this kind of long introduction, what I think should have already come clear is that the way in which we build these tokens and we organize this decentralized ledger is going to depend in a fundamental way on the existing technology. In fact, Brighton itself was invented to be able to have the centralized ledgers, in the case of Egypt of Babylon, to be able to keep track of who was given what to whom. And in that sense, the, for instance, also the appearance of minting, etc., the invention of paper itself, the arrival of cryptocurrencies, and in general, everything related with uh, the new fintech uh, technologies that we have is just one more step in this constant interaction that we have had for centuries between technological change and money. And in particular, what is very interesting about uh, this type of cryptocurrencies is the fact that uh, computer networks have dramatically changed the logistics of the distribution of private monies. I'm old enough to remember, I'm, I'm from Spain originally, when we transitioned from the peseta or the franco in France or the, or the Deutsche Mark in Germany to the euro, logistically it was an enormous amount of effort that involved years of preparation. These days it would have been much, much easier because you could do everything through a computer, through a change of a few computer um, code and uh, be able to distribute the new euros much, much faster. And of course that we also have other issues, for instance, thanks to cryptographic techniques that we can automatically implement contingent contracts and other ideas. Okay, so now that we are in this completely different uh, world, what I have been trying to think in my, uh, in my research is you know, is private money going to be a good alternative to public monies? And the answer that we tend to get with my co-authors, I have a number of different co-authors on this, on these research projects, is nuance. 
And it's nuanced because first we are going to conclude that in general systems of private money are not going to deliver price stability and more importantly they are not going to deliver the socially optimum amount of money. And the answer is exactly as I was mentioning before, whoever talks about money talks about trade frictions and in particular prices are not going to play a fully allocative role in contexts in which there are trade frictions. Now, does that mean that necessarily we need to prefer a public money? No, not necessarily. It will depend. Public money is also going to be subject to a number of problems, particular political economic considerations. And then what one is to think is given the particular situations of each country, which of the two uh, problems are more important? Do we think that the type of inefficiencies generated by trade frictions are going to imply that uh, pri uh, private monies are not going to be very good in comparison with the political economic considerations of whether or not public monies are going to be uh, very good. And in particular, with respect to public monies and the revolution, what I have been um, thinking quite a bit is about central bank digital currencies. And the main lesson I have learned uh, from that type of research is that uh, people use the same words to mean something very, very different. Some people want to talk about central bank digital currencies just as an example of some type of electronic money, of reserves, of being able to do a lot of the things that we do right now in a much simpler way. But there is also a lot of people who think about central bank digital currencies as implying opening the central bank a balance sheet to all lenders and borrowers. And this often has been known as central bank open to all. And in fact, if you read the papers and the books of many of the most fervent, fervorous proponents of these central bank digital currencies, they are very open that they consider this central bank open to all as a fundamental aspect of their proposal. And what I have been thinking is, well, is the case is how is what are the consequences of this in some sense radical reorganization of for central banking and in particular the type of results that we get is that opening the central bank to all can achieve a few good things. For instance, you can improve under certain conditions the type of allocations that the market will give. For instance, central banks are going to be better at deter uh, banking runs than commercial banks. But on the other hand, you are also providing an enormous amount of power to, to central banks and that central banks are more than likely to be subject to very important political economic pressures and those economic political economic pressures are going to uh, distort allocations in very important ways. And the conclusion I tend to get at this moment is that, yes, if you think about central bank digital currencies as just having a little bit of a better payment system, of course, we need to go in that direction. But if you are thinking about central bank digital currencies, as many, many of the proponents of those uh, are defending them uh, in the sense of opening the central bank to all, we are actually, or I'm actually quite skeptical about the positive outcome of such, uh, of such idea. So that's it. Great, thank you so much, Jesus. Uh, we will go now to George. George, the floor is yours. Thank you, Nick. Can you all hear me? I can hear you. That's a good start. <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, as, uh, as other speakers have uh, made clear, uh, various proposals for central bank uh, digital currency involve different technical solutions to uh, at least as many different uh, distinct technical problems. And so what I want to uh, do is to focus on uh, uh, those proposals 
that would allow anyone to have a Fed master account, the kind uh, that uh, Jesus was talking about at the end of his remarks, uh, either directly or, as some propose, uh, using ordinary banks as, as brokers. Now, our sessions about uh, the monetary policy implications of such proposals, and since my time is limited, I want to concentrate on uh, the narrower topic of their potential to complicate policy by actually becoming a new source of financial instability. And uh, I should point out that uh, the things I'm going to say here really are just elaborating on uh, Professor Prasad's concerns, uh, remarks concerning the flight risk that central bank uh, uh, digital currencies can pose. So uh, the question is, how could individual Fed accounts be destabilizing? Uh, let's start by considering a the case of a classic, I'll call it a classic systemic financial crisis. This consists of uh, a run, not on one or a small number of banks, but out of bank into uh, deposits entirely into central bank currency. That's what we traditionally think of as a systemic uh, crisis. And um, anybody who studied money and banking learns that in a, in a fractional reserve system, Every dollar of paper currency withdrawn from the banking system leads to a, a, a much larger reduction in bank deposits and hence a, a reduction in the money stock. So in principle, aggressive central bank expansion can, can keep the money stocks from shrinking in a case like that. But what it can't do is preserve the private credit structure which collapses along with the stock of private money. So a, a serious uh, credit channel bust, to use a, a term that Ben Bernanke has popularized, uh, can still occur. Now, the good news, traditionally, is that because stockpiling and transacting with paper currency is inconvenient, to say the least, uh, for large transactions especially, and very risky, most, most historical bank runs haven't been systemic in this sense. Most runs have been runs from banks that are suspected of being unsound into others that people still trust. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> that's especially been the case in banking systems with nationwide branch banking networks, because that means that pretty much everywhere <laughs> there's, there are several banks you can choose from to move your money to and still have access to their services. Systemic runs of the kind I've been discussing, uh, those in contrast have been actually quite rare historically. In fact, even in the United States, which seen, has seen more than their share of uh, panics, uh, even in pre-insurance days, they weren't very common. The, the most well-known exception to this, uh, by the way, the bank runs of February and March 1933, uh, where itself really not a case of a generalized banking panic, as people often assume, but rather an instance in which growing fears of devaluation uh, with uh, FDR uh, about to take office uh, resulted in a run on the dollar. So even that instance doesn't quite fit the usual story. But this is all to the, the point of all this is uh, it takes a, a pretty big shock for people to give up on all kinds of private money and hoard central bank currency, paper currency instead. All right, so 
what's the relevance of all this to uh, giving everybody master accounts? Well, now suppose that instead of facing the two options I talked about, holding the liquid claims of private intermediaries versus holding central bank paper currency, people have the third option of placing funds in their own personal Fed account. Well, uh, according to at least some advocates of private Fed accounts, besides being perfectly safe, they'd offer many of the advantages of ordinary bank accounts and could be even cheaper to maintain. Indeed, uh, their cheapness is supposed to be one reason why the unbanked might uh, uh, be willing to use them. Some even imagine that the Fed would pay interest on these accounts and perhaps pay it at the same rate that it currently pays on bank reserves. In that case, personal Fed account balances would be much closer substitutes for private liquid dollar assets than paper Federal Reserve notes are. Okay, so now assume a world in which Fed accounts are available, but assume that initially they're just used by people who would otherwise have been unbanked or underbanked. Well, it's easy to imagine how even a relatively modest shock to confidence in uh, private banks or a modest shock to private market yields could uh, lead to a substantial runs out of private sector intermediaries and into these Fed accounts. The danger becomes especially serious if those accounts are able, as some of their advocates claim, <clears throat> to crowd out not just ordinary bank deposits, but repurchase agreements, euro dollars, money market mutual fund shares, etc. If private Fed accounts could crowd out such private assets partially or gradually, what's to keep them from doing so suddenly and completely, which of course uh, would be very problematic. Now, um, you might think I'm exaggerating, but the Fed itself has raised this concern. It's very aware, I'm glad to say, of the risk that non-bank Fed accounts pose to financial stability. In his recent remarks about central bank digital currency, Jay Powell has drawn attention to this potential problem, among others. But the issue also came up uh, a couple years ago when the narrow bank, or TNB, applied to the Fed for a, a master account. Time doesn't permit me to talk too much about what TNB wanted to do, but basically the idea was this. At the time, uh, the Fed was paying more interest on uh, reserves than money market funds were able to earn on their portfolios. So TNB had a plan that it would get a master account and basically allow money market funds to put money there so they could take advantage of the Fed's higher interest earnings and pass them on to their customers. <clears throat> well, in its advance notice of proposed rulemaking regarding uh, uh, the possible uh, resort to what the Fed called pass-through investment entity master accounts, right, where the TNB was the first potential such pass-through investment entity, or PTI. I always want to say PITI, but it's P-T-I-E, the acronym. I think they pronounce it PTI. Uh, Fed officials explain that they would, quote, have the potential to complicate the implementation of monetary policy uh, 
unquote, especially by having, quote, a negative effect on financial stability, unquote. And let me read in more detail what the, uh, uh, what the Fed had to say here, because it's so germane to our topic. Quote, deposits at PTIs, like P, uh, TNB, could significantly reduce financial stability by providing a nearly unlimited supply of very attractive safe haven assets during periods of financial market stress. PTI deposits could be seen as more attractive even than treasury bills because they would provide instantaneous liquidity, could be available in very large quantities, and would earn interest at an administered rate that would not necessarily fall as demand surges. As a result, I'm still quoting, in times of stress, investors who would otherwise provide short-term funding to non-financial firms, financial institutions, and state and local governments could rapidly withdraw that funding from those borrowers and instead deposit the funds at PTIs and thereby uh, place them indirectly into the Fed. The sudden withdrawal of funding from these borrowers could greatly amplify systemic stress, unquote. <clears throat> well, of course, what goes for TNB and PTIs would go as well for any plan to grant all individuals, businesses, and institutions the right to hold master accounts at the Fed. Well, I suppose some proponents of uh, individual Fed accounts might say that, well, if my concerns uh, and the Feds are valid, one solution is simply to outlaw private monies altogether, as well as near monies, and, um, and of course, in doing so, suppress as much private credit intermediation. After hearing uh, Martin uh, Chorzempa speak, I'm tempted to, to call this the 1984 solution. Well, with due respect to those who might favor this uh, approach, I think a much more logical and certainly less draconian uh, alternative uh, is to have the Fed cooperate with banks and non-bank payment service uh, providers, that is fintechs, uh, so as to take the fullest possible advantage of high-tech private alternatives specifically designed to replace the horse and buggy paper money that we presently rely on. I mean providers of what uh, Neha Nerulu called uh, digital cash in, in that earlier session, and especially uh, opportunities to make use of, to innovate and assist the use of digital cash designed specifically for people who can't have or who don't want to have bank deposits. That's essentially by the way, the approach that the Bank of England took in 2017, when it invited hundreds of fintechs, something like 450 fintechs, to uh, uh, apply for uh, account settlement accounts with it, the equivalent of the Fed's master accounts. These were providers of products like prepaid cash cards and prepaid online and mobile accounts. Uh, the bank's express aim in doing this was to allow these fintechs to compete more effectively with banks and building societies, which previously had the exclusive right to have these uh, uh, settlement accounts. There were only about 50 that had that right. So <laughs> it's now 450 more that can take part. 
But the Bank of England's policy also uh, makes it easier for fintechs to more effectively compete with the bank itself by supplying smart prepaid cards and other superior uh, digital cash substitutes uh, for its paper currency that when transferred can still glide along the bank's own settlement rails. Uh, given our topic, I think it's especially worth noting how in announcing the Bank of England's decision, Governor Mark Carney observed that far from posing greater risks, he believed it would, quote, support financial stability through greater diversity and risk-reducing payment technologies. Uh, more specifically, uh, the Bank of England said that the new policy would promote stability in three ways. First, it would create more diverse payment arrangements with fewer single points of failure. Second, it would help the bank to identify and develop new risk-reducing technologies. And finally, it would expand the range of transactions that could take place electronically and be settled in central bank money. I think uh, it's important in closing to note the importance that the Bank of England assigns here to promoting ongoing uh, innovation. That's something that a central bank monopoly of all payments media is hardly likely to, to promote. Uh, just consider here how the long-standing central bank monopolies of hand-to-hand -hand currency limited innovation in that space until non-bank private market innovators finally prompted central banks to consider embracing new technologies. Uh, well, time alone will tell whether the Bank of England's expectations are fulfilled, but its approach seems to me a reasonable compromise between the status quo on one hand and the option of making the Fed our only source of payments media on the other. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, George. Uh, we will now go to David and Alfado from the St. Louis Fed. David, the floor is yours. Thanks a lot, Nick, and thanks to Cato for inviting me. This has just been a fantastic conference. I, I've really enjoyed the different perspectives that people have brought to this, these issues. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about central bank digital currency as well, something I've talked about, uh, thought about for a number of years, but uh, it's really nice to see the progress that's being made in this in this regard. Uh, I'm going to talk specifically just in the context of the United States. I think the next talk will uh, delve more into the international considerations. Um, but you know, like like most people, when I think about um, digital currency, uh, the subject of this conference, you know, the first thing is uh, I'm a, I'm a macroeconomist, central banker. You know, obviously not up on the tech, but when I think when I think about digital currency, I ask like, what are what are people talking about? I mean, we we know that the vast majority of of the money supply in the United States is already in digital form, um, and if this is the case, what's all the fuss about this uh, digital currency in, in general, and in particular, why why should the central bank become involved? Um, and as others have pointed out, you know, I mean, the first thing that comes to, to, to my mind as a, as a macro money theorist is, well, geez, I mean, we, we already do have a, a form of central bank digital currency. And, um, you know, we have fully insured accounts, the low cost, uh, interest bearing, payments processed in real time. And uh, I might, might add in, in a counter to, to, to Larry's uh, view, perhaps, that uh, the system seems to work pretty well. 
Um, and unfortunately, it's only available to banks and a select few other agencies, but you know, all the rest of us have to go through a banking system or some associated money service business. Um, you know, and I could spend a, a lot of time at this stage, you know, usually kind of railing against all the, uh, uh, the issues that are involved in the modern day payment system, the difficulties with the plumbing, the interchange fees, et cetera. But, but one thing I think that is important actually to, to realize is that we should, we should take some time to acknowledge, in fact, the tremendous advancements that have been made in payments over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and so my own view is that uh, you know, this idea of a central uh, bank digital, digital currency, well, it's not, probably not essential. Um, I think we, we can get it, get, get our, go and get along without it, but I, I, I do, do feel that some version of the idea uh, remains um, uh, desirable. And that's what I wanna talk about uh, today. So, you know, when I, when I take a look at the, the landscape in the United States in terms of the major money supplies, I kind of see three major types of monies. And, and all of these monetary instruments exist as liabilities on, on, on some bank's balance sheet, either the central bank or a private bank. And of course we, we have the, um, what you might call the private bank digital currency option already available in the form of checkable deposits. This is available to everybody, US persons and uh, some, some select foreigners as well. And payments are typically processed on a netting uh, procedure like through ACH. Okay, what about on the, the central bank liabilities? We have two components, right? We have uh, the central bank digital currency that I've just I've explained already in the form of reserve accounts. Uh, banks have access to this and interbank payments are, 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 are processed through Fedwire, which is a real-time growth settlement system operated by the Fed. Um, and then of course we have the, uh, the paper, the paper uh, a version of uh, the central bank liabilities, right? The, the, the stuff that we're familiar with, the small denomination bills where payments are processed on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. And these are basically permissionless bearer instruments issued by the Fed. So those are the three major uh, uh, money supplies. Uh, and so what about this idea of central bank digital currency for all though? So the way, the way I think about the question is, is look, I mean, the, the, the Fed, or, uh, it's already the case that everybody in the world has access to a piece of the Fed's balance sheet. Only it's, it's restricted to be the paper form of the Fed's balance sheet. Um, why not? Why not let people have access to the uh, electronic component as well? Uh, maybe, maybe there was a time in the past when it made sense to kind of restrict access in, in this manner. But as many have uh, mentioned, you know, there's been tremendous amount of progress in uh, in 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 in, uh, in communications uh, technologies that permits more direct access to these databases, and so. Why not exploit this technology and re-examine this question? Does it still make sense to restrict the electronic portion of the Fed's balance sheet to just banks, or does it make sense to open it up just the way um, the paper component of the Fed's liabilities are open to all? And this, of course, could take place either uh, directly, as people have mentioned, uh, a one or two tier system, or perhaps indirectly through some synthetic product. The one thing I, I do think it is, is important, and I don't know, I'd like to probably talk to Caitlin about this as well. But for me, when, when people talk about central bank digital currency, for me, this idea is conceptually distinct from the, any notions of blockchain, which I think it's important that whenever one uses the word blockchain, that one try to define it as precisely as, as one can. Uh, I, I, I define it as a game-based record keeping systems 
managed through some communal consensus protocols kind of, and uh, you know, Bitcoin being the prototypical, prototypical example of that. Uh, my own view is that is I, I think that standard database management uh, protocols are going to be fine with delegated record keepers should suffice for this purpose. Uh, and I guess this is something we could debate, but that's my view. I don't think this has anything to do with blockchain. In terms of um, whether or not we should focus on the permissioned objects or the permissionless objects, I'm pretty agnostic. I think we can have a discussion about that. I can see the merits of both. Perhaps they could coexist, in fact. Um, the paper currency, I think, could continue to circulate. Uh, in fact, I think the, the US $100 note is probably one of the uh, United States' most successful exports, as far as I can tell. Um, so sure, uh, if people want them, if they, if they deem to be socially useful, let them have them. I might, I might think about um, administering a, a, a fee for replacement for worn out bills. It's not costless to maintain that stock of, of paper currency. So users should pay for it. I'm also agnostic over, over kind of direct versions of CBDC or more synthetic versions. I think again, uh, uh, the, the former seems like the most obvious and direct approach, but I, I can see the uh, attractiveness for pra pragmatic purposes of synthetic products. I mean, at the end of the day, who cares really? I mean, let's just get it done and design it properly one way or the other. I think even money funds could work if the Fed would implement a, a standing repo facility for treasuries. Um, so a lot of ways we could do this, and I don't think we should be wedded necessarily to one approach. But if we, if we had to be, I, I'm a big fan of the CBDC as a basic public option, the way that Morgan Ricks and his co-authors have advocated. Uh, and this vision is, is, is listen, I mean, I, I don't want to take uh, like Larry's approach either. You know, you've got this kind of heavy handed government or a free market. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not fair to what Larry was saying, but I'm thinking of just a basic public option. Um, no fees no minimum balances which is apparently a big barrier to the unbanked in the, in the united states the, min the minimum balance requirement so just get rid of that no fees no minimum balances you know no overdraft privileges could be interest bearing the interest rate could be less than the interest on reserves it could be zero it could be negative and of course uh, uh, a real-time gross settlement system available to at least all u.s persons just the way treasury direct is today and perhaps more and I think this is, would be great because it removes all the counterparty risk associated with basic payment services. So what's not to like? And one thing I'd like to, to dwell on uh, briefly is, is kind of this, why, why zero user cost? I mean, uh, you know, we, we have to understand, of course, there's a lot of details to tend to in managing large databases and large volumes of data, uh, keeping it secure, et cetera. But at, at the end of the day, you know, what we're talking about here is, uh, you know, Payments entail debit uh, credit operations on a ledger. So at some basic fundamental level, this is not rocket science. And, um, and sending payment requests should cost the same as sending an email. I think something that uh, Maya uh, alluded to in her talk. Um, and so, you know, it, these, this, it sounds like this, this, this operation should be close to free, at least as the technology continues to evolve and, and becomes more and more automated. There are, there are fixed costs, of course, to be dealt with, uh, but these, I think, could be financed the way we finance all kind of public goods like roads and sidewalks and public schools, other general tax revenue. Um, or if you're worried about the Monetary Control Act, you might think about extracting some fees for high value accounts, or indeed, this doesn't have to be done by the, the Fed necessarily, it could be something done by the Treasury. 
I, I do think this is a, a good idea for two reasons, an economic one and a political one. One, I think it's an economically smart idea. Uh, in, the, in the words of Carter Glass, um, you know, it's a good idea to eliminate what he referred to as the toll gates upon the highway of commerce. I love that phrase, eliminate the toll gates upon the highway of commerce. And that's what these interchange fees are and all these kind of, you know, clogging up of, uh, of communications that makes payments not as seamless, not work as seamlessly as they should in principle. Uh, we should be promoting uh, trade and removing this, what is a, a de facto tax on trade. So it's an economically smart idea. Um, and even if you don't buy that economic argument, I actually think it would be a politically smart idea to, to make this service available as a basic public option. I think it would go a long way to uh, level the playing field for small businesses who are operating on small business mar uh, small profit margins. Um, you know, dealing with cash is, 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 is expensive. It's, uh, you know, it's, it takes a lot of effort to keep it safe. It's kind of filthy. Uh, it's not pleasant. And of course, dealing with uh, the, um, you know, the, and also there's high interchange fees. So, so it would level the playing field for small business. I also do think it would go some way to promoting financial inclusion. Um, and you know the, the the big players in the field do enjoy a lot of privileges. You know, banks have deposit insurance; they have lender of last resort availability. So the big players get a lot of privileges. Why not toss the rest of the population uh, some some benefits as well? So I think it's actually a politically smart idea to do as well. As for the impact on banks, um, I'll follow uh, Hezu here. I've been doing some research as well. Uh, I, uh, and I've, I've kind of asked the question of what sort of impact might this innovation have on regular banks. Um, I, I've just recently published a paper in the Economic Journal that deals exactly with this question. I won't go into details here, but I'll just describe the uh, conclusions was uh, perhaps a bit surprising. What I found was that if the central bank issues this currency and, and the interest that it earns is less than the interest on reserves, then the effect of, of introducing this, this object doesn't, um, what, it, what it does is it, it induces the banks actually to retain their deposits. You, you do not see the deposits flow to the central bank like many are predicting. Why is that? Well, because uh, banks are motivated to hold on to these deposits and they're going to compete more aggressively for them. Uh, and they're going to do so by, by, in the model, by increasing the deposit rate, but in general, perhaps offering more services, et cetera. Uh, and so they expand, uh, they, they actually, um, uh, make these deposits more attractive in an effort to, to hold on to them. This has the effect in the model of actually uh, expanding the depositor base because, because this uh, people are effectively substituting out of the uh, paper version of the payment instrument into the electronic version because it's now more attractive. So in fact, banks should see the depositor uh, deposit base as actually expand. Um, and uh, this will have the effect of, of course, lowering profit margins. But if if the uh, opportunity cost of lending remains unchanged, and if the opportunity cost is the interest on reserves, there's no reason to expect the lending to be disintermediated. So the model makes a very stark prediction. We should not expect this to adversely affect a bank's lending activity in any material sense. Um, and in the paper, I, I, I actually appeal to some historical episodes that kind of are similar to what is, is proposed here. Uh, in 1935, the Bank of Canada replaced private banknotes with its own paper currency. And at the time, there was great consternation about, among the Canadian banks about what this would do to their profits, what would, would it do to their lending activity. 
Uh, and Anna Grodeka Messi has a nice data set. She's actually gone and, est uh, and, and examined this episode. And she's, she's estimated that, yes, indeed, the banks did take a bit of a hit on profits, but the impact on lending, she, she ascertains, is basically zero, consistent with my theoretical model. And, you know, of course, today, Canadian banks are, are among the, the, the most profitable and safest and biggest in the world. Now, no Canadian bank is complaining that they can't print paper notes. So banks, banks can be expected to be just do fine, I think. I want to um, quickly touch on the financial instability concerns because George raised them. And I think this is a serious issue that needs to be uh, uh, studied carefully. I, I, I basically cannot disagree more with what George said. And I think this will come as great relief to George because we, we, get, we get nervous when we start to agree too much. <laughs> so, you know, my own view is, is I, I just don't see it. I mean, uh, you know, at least I, I don't see it if the system is designed intelligently. And I think that's an important proviso. And, and, and something George said uh, uh, suggested that he was thinking of a, a system that was not designed intelligently. Um, in the sense that the administered rate was, was to be insensitive to the possibility of a run or a mass uh, flow into the fund. So, so okay, uh, recall similar concerns were raised when the Fed introduced the overnight reverse repo facility in 2015. Exactly the same concerns and for exactly the same reason. Uh, people said that, oh my goodness, this has just uh, expanded uh, uh, the number of counterparties that have access to a deposit facility with the Fed. This is going to be pro provide a uh, massive uh, flight to safety uh, uh, vehicle for you know what's going to happen. Well, the answer is though, George, is the answer is the administered rate does not have to be insensitive to macroeconomic conditions. So a, by a proper design, what you'd want in this case, if you were afraid of a mass flow into the fund disintermediate or pulling funding from the private banks, what you do in this case is severely cut the interest rate possibly into negative territory to make, make it very unattractive. This is in fact superior to cash because currency, you can't cut the interest rate to negative. So this, if, if anything, this should actually uh, enhance stability, not, not make the system more unstable. And, and indeed, um, uh, you know, if, if this type of product actually disintermediates uh, uninsured money funds, again, this is another reason why this innovation might lend to more stability. I just want to end with, uh, in terms of um, a lot of things that uh, Larry said earlier about promoting innovation and government agencies. Um, you know, government agencies don't always have a good reputation on this score uh, for promoting innovation, but, uh, and, and Larry, probably nobody here uh, understood your reference to Petro-Canada, but I do, uh, being a Canadian, uh, and Petro-Canada was fine as far as I was concerned, but uh, but I don't think you should be thinking about Petro-Canada. You should be thinking about NASA, maybe. Maybe that's a better way to think about it. So even if we can draw on past examples of bad, you know, bad or ill-designed, poorly designed um, episodes, uh, that doesn't mean going forward we can't be more clever uh, about designing a product going forward. And indeed, I think a major complaint I hear, uh, or used to hear at least, by fintech companies was, was that they, they, they did not have access to a Fed master account. Uh, obviously, a central bank digital currency for all would solve this problem. And indeed, it might go a long way to actually promoting innovation in the space, far from inhibiting it. That's all I have to say, Nick. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, David. And, and our final panelist will be Dong from the IMF. The floor is yours, Dong. Thank you. 
Thank you, Nick. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, let me first thank Cato Institute for the kind invitation. Uh, it's very nice to be here to participate in the discussion. Now, uh, today I will share with you some of the work we have been doing at the IMF on the international aspect of using digital currencies. So we published a paper on October 19th entitled The Digital Money Across Borders, uh, Macrofinancial Implications. Uh, now, today I will, I will share some of the highlights, particularly I will focus a bit more on global stable coins. But, you know, let me first uh, uh, talk a little bit about digital currencies uh, um, more uh, broadly. Um, so basically, digital currencies uh, may change some of the traditional dynamics that determine international use of currencies. Now, we know traditionally economic weight of, weight of the issuing country for example, the United States is the largest uh, economy of the world. Certainly, that's an important determinant of the predominance, uh, predominant use of the dollar globally. So that economic weight of the issuing country, trade links, safety and uh, liquidity of the currency, financial connections, and the geopolitical geopolitical factors uh, explain why some currencies, like the U.S. dollar, are used disproportionately in cross-border transactions. Of course, in addition, uh, strong network effects and the synergies across different functions of money for the, its function as a uh, unit of account, of ex a medium of exchange and store of value. There are synergies across these functions of money. Uh, they reinforce each other. So once the currency is dominant, it has ten tended to stay dominant. Now, digital currency might change this traditional dynamics in significant ways. Uh, there are certain intrinsic uh, attributes of, uh, of digital currencies that could drive their adoption and use in, in ways that are quite distinct. So what are these intrinsic attributes of digital currencies? Uh, first of all, they have the potential to lower transaction costs by reducing reliance on, on banks. From a cross-border payments point of view, we know cross-border payments rely on multi-layered correspondent banking relationships. And that's quite complicated and that has certainly contributed to the um, uh, high cost, low speed, lack of transparency and lack of access in cross-border payments. These are the problems we are confronting uh, in cross-border payments. Uh, so digital currencies uh, will change that, have the potential certainly of changing that by making by shortening the, the payments chain, making the payment structure much flatter. And um, of course, digital currencies can also, also widen access to services and promote financial inclusion through mobile devices. Uh, you don't need a bank account uh, to, to use the payment services uh, provided by digital currency. Of course, uh, in, in the case of the stable coins, particularly global stable coins, uh, they open the possibility of complementary services offered on social, plat uh, social networking platforms and e-commerce platforms, um, particularly of these large um, platforms uh, associated with the big techs. So what we find is that, or what we have argued is that central bank digital currencies uh, certainly uh, do not fundamentally change the economic forces that traditionally lead to 
uh, international use of currencies or the international status of currencies, uh, they could quantitatively reinforce such incentives because they are much easier to obtain. Uh, as I mentioned, these, these intrinsic attributes could make them much more convenient to use, much easier to access. Now, for stable global stable coins, particularly uh, uh, stable coins uh, that have potential to be used widely across the globe, for example, Libra uh, uh, proposed by Facebook and its partners, then if they are pegged to existing fiat currencies, their monetary effects would be similar to CBDCs. But they may incur important financial stability problems because there might be bouts of uh, crisis confidence associated with the credibility of the peg itself. If people, if users start doubting the credibility of the peg, that might introduce confidence crisis. Now, the monetary effects of GSCs would be similar, or GSCs, global stablecoins, would be similar to CBDCs if they are pegged to fiat currencies. Now, if they represent an independent unit of account, then their, their, their um, uh, impact could be much more significant. Uh, so let me, maybe in the, first, uh, in the rest of my talk, let me focus a bit more on global stable coins. Why are they, you know, what, what's special about them? Uh, why, should the, why should we pay really more attention to the potential monetary and the financial stability uh, effects on uh, uh, the countries that use, that adopt and the use of, uh, use these uh, GSCs, but also more globally, because these, these schemes can span uh, multiple countries. So what's special about these uh, global stable coins? Because they are associated uh, with the large platforms, uh, social networking or e-commerce platforms. And they, they have the potential to be adopted really rapidly and widely due to their close association uh, 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 with these platforms. Uh, we know that people already use the big tech, uh, big platforms to connect with each other and exchange goods and services. So, so stable coins issued by these companies could really benefit from network effects as a result of their large number of users their, and their ability uh, to bundle different products. Now, we know that stable coins um, can really be more than just a new form of money. They can provide entry into a wider platform of services. Um, in the, I think, for example, Facebook and its partners could follow a similar pattern as Alipay and WeChat Pay in China by bundling their existing social media and e-commerce services, uh, respectively with payment services through the issuance of a, a stablecoin. So just for uh, expositional purpose, not necessarily a forecast, we can imagine a scenario of a really wide uh, adoption of a global stablecoin. Uh, so in this scenario, a, a single GSC, a global stablecoin, becomes commonly adopted in many countries, and they can actually replace the local currency as a store of value, as a means of payment, and as unit of account. So this is the classical currency substitution problem many countries faced. 
particularly in those countries that have some problems with their own monetary stability. They might, might have had a history of high inflation or uh, unstable exchange rates. So in these countries, you know, this new private money, a global stablecoin, actually uh, uh, played the role of the traditional the dollar dollarization. Um, so because of these, their intrinsic attributes, uh, wide spread use of the GSC uh, could also make cross-border payments much cheaper and faster. Uh, now, in the beginning, we know these stable coins all have plans to be packed uh, to an existing fiat currency. But at some point, once adoption reaches some critical mass, the peg to the uh, existing fiat currency may actually no longer be needed to generate trust in the value of the, uh, of the global stablecoin. So its value could be preserved by the issuer committing to a credible set of rules or principles, such as the amount and the pace of issuance, the level of interest to be paid or fees to be charged, much like central banks uh, conducting monetary policy, uh, although necessarily uh, uh, not having the same instruments or objectives. For example, you could imagine uh, that uh, uh, the, the, the platform, the issuer, may target a price stabilization rule relative to a basket of products uh, sold on the big tax platform. So what are the monetary effects uh, of, of uh, such a scenario? So the global stablecoin can affect the transmission of monetary policy in the user countries uh, by increasing currency substitution and also by reshaping patterns of business uh, synchronization. Uh, when you know, substitution into a global stablecoin is no different from substitution into existing fiat currencies. Uh, however, the GSC or the global stablecoin could intensify currency substitution uh, due to easier accessibility. In addition, it could also facilitate economic activities and the trade links organized around big tax and to help reshape, reshape patterns of business cycle synchronization, uh, which may uh, reduce the ability of monetary policy to respond to shocks. Uh, so in terms of uh, uh, financials, now, let me just also say a little bit um, about uh, particularly in the case of, a, of global stablecoin uh, that, is, uh, that has its an independent unit of account. Uh, so we know the challenges associated with, with uh, the conduct of monetary policy in the currency union, uh, but the global adoption of a GF, GSC or global stablecoin with an independent unit of account will subject uh, th those countries that use this uh, uh, global stablecoin to the monetary stance of a private firm. Uh, so this could raise fundamental issues about entrusting the care of a centerpiece of country's macroeconomic policy to a profit-oriented company. When, although privately issued money has circulated in various forms in the past, the reach of a globally adopted global stablecoin would be unprecedented. Therefore, the impact of any potential misuse of the payment system and the monetary stance for private ends could exceed uh, that of any private money previously seen. Um, now, if the 
Global stablecoin has a price stabilization rule relative to a basket of goods sold on the big tax uh, platform. Uh, the traditional notions of optimal currency areas based on the synchronicity uh, of national business cycles could also be uh, challenged. Uh, we know platform-based economic activities in other parts of the economy could experience different trends. Uh, the sectors closely associated with the platform could become a source of shock to other parts of the economy. Uh, moreover, if the global stablecoins, uh, stablecoin plays an adjustable rate of return, changes uh, to, its, to this rate of return may also not be aligned with what is required to stabilize other parts of the economy. So in terms of financial stability, uh, you know, uh, some other speakers in this conference have also mentioned the run risks so in the cross-border context for emerging markets or low-income countries, this uh, might, be, uh, could, might also be a similar uh, or serious uh, uh, problem in the sense that in, the, in case of currency substitution, of course, the lack of emergency liquidity assistance uh, could be an important factor uh, to make, make uh, bank runs easier uh, uh, to happen. Uh, so that's an, another problem associated with uh, uh, financial stability, of course, is that if one part of the global stablecoin ecosystem, we know that uh, for a global stablecoin to operate, there has to be a fairly complicated ecosystem to support it. There will be wallet service providers, uh, uh, trustees uh, to manage the funds back in the issuance. So if one part of that system uh, has a has a problem, that problem can be transmitted across, uh, uh, across the globe uh, uh, and that uh, could introduce very important financial stability uh, risks. So basically in terms of policy challenges, uh, we think that for the countries that adopt the global stablecoin, the main challenge is how to preserve monetary and financial stability without foregoing the benefits of more efficient cross-border payments and the better access to international capital markets. Countries, uh, those countries uh, will also have a strong interest in ensuring that the global stablecoin arrangement has robust governance and risk management. Uh, they will need to develop mechanisms to ensure that the global stablecoin issuers profit maximization objectives do not jeopardize monetary and financial stability. So uh, policies uh, to promote contestability among big tech platforms could help mitigate the risks posed by lack of competition and uncertain governance of uh, potential global stablecoin issuers. Uh, if effective competition among uh, these issuers could help alleviate the conflict of interest problems uh, I have talked about uh, and enhance monetary stability in the longer term. So let me uh, conclude. Uh, basically, we think that the rise of global stablecoins could uh, hark back to an era uh, when the private sector played an important role in the monetary sphere with big tax, not only supplying goods and services, but also pay payment instruments had to, that could influence monetary policy in many countries. Uh, to maintain global monetary and financial stability in this new digital monetary landscape, it is crucial to put in, into place sound governance, regulatory 
and the competition policy frameworks for the global stable coins. So uh, those are my remarks. Let me stop here and I'll be happy to, to take, take questions uh, later on. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dong. And thank you to all of our uh, presenters uh, this afternoon. Uh, we'll do uh, uh, 15 minutes now of uh, uh, Q&A session. And I'll start uh, with a question for David. Um, David, would, would the introduction of a CBDC, including Fed retail deposits, how would it complicate or how would it assist the Fed's monetary control efforts? Could it invite large scale uh, bank disintermediation during the crisis? Uh, as, as George had suggested, uh, do you think there would be steps needed to guard against that outcome or to otherwise protect commercial banks from what might be considered unfair central bank uh, competition? Yeah, like I, I said, I think that's an important question. Um, I think so much depends on design. Uh, in principle, you know, I could imagine uh, it not being a problem if, um, in, in the sense that um, if, if <laughs> these accounts, you can charge negative interest rate on these accounts and make them sufficiently unattractive for, for, for depositors to flock to those accounts. So, you know, you can you can make them sufficiently uh, uh, unattractive to to prevent the run that you're you're fearing. So so there's that. Even the 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 option of that should uh, potentially discourage uh, a potential flight to safety in the way you described. At the same time, you know, depending on on kind of what support you have from Congress, uh, and as other people have mentioned, um, you know, you'd have everybody would have these Fed accounts, and in a crisis like this, uh, you know, you could imagine very, very rapid, quick, direct deposits to, to your bank accounts to people who, for example, uh, right now during the crisis that are desperately, uh, you know, struggling and in need of cash. Uh, many people still haven't received their support checks as far as I can <laughs> tell. So, so th this, this would be a great tool. I think it would be a, a great tool if used uh, judiciously. And um, I think that the run risks that, that George has highlighted are something we have to uh, take into consideration, but I think you can guard against it. George, George, a question for you, um, and, and thank you, David. Uh, when, when thinking about the history of money, have there been crises or incidents in which a digital currency could have succeeded where commodity or fiat monies failed? And on that line of thinking, uh, do you think a U.S. digital currency could have improved the effectiveness of past monetary policy moves? It's an interesting question. I think I'll start by by pointing out that um, that non-digital currency has uh, played a role historically in combating business cycles and stabilizing money in the form of banknotes. But when they were issued competitively by private sector banks, one of the big advantages of that uh, was that you had all kinds of fluctuations in the demand for hand-to-hand -hand money relative to other kinds of money, especially the harvest season that was notorious. And in countries like Canada, where the private banks, the commercial banks could issue their own hand-to-hand -hand monies, in this case, good old fashioned paper banknotes, uh, that prevented these spikes in demand for hand-to-hand -hand money from draining bank reserves. And it kept the money multiplier, as we like used to call it, <laughs> very stable. And there were no seasonal uh, 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 cycles. There were no uh, panics. 
in Canada and in the US in contrast where we even before the Fed we put very strict limitation uh, uh, limitations on banks issues to uh, ability to issue banknotes those turned out to be the main cause of crises uh, before the Fed and a big challenge for the Fed itself because the Fed once it monopolized paper currency had to make sure that it adjusted that quantity in response to cyclical and seasonal changes. So uh, that was just with good old fashioned paper currency. When it was privately supplied, it had these advantages. I think with uh, private digital cash that we've been contemplating, contemplating, I think that uh, it also can play a big role. One thing that uh, David has talked about clever uh, contractual, or I should say clever uh, arrangements whereby central banks would prevent digital disintermediation if, if they adjusted interest rates just right. But in the same way, in the past, again, there were uh, contracts that allowed banks to temporarily suspend convertibility as a way to deal with disintermediation crises. They weren't used often, but they were there. Now, if you have no digital currency or no currency at all that private suppliers can issue, then suspending people's right to convert deposits into cash itself poses can pose a lot of harm because a lot of people need cash or hand-to-hand -hand money. But if you combine suspension contracts with private cash substitutes that can circulate hand-to-hand, -hand, they could be digital or paper, then you could suspend convertibility of private money into central bank money, but still have every kind of currency available that people might need for ordinary transactions. So there's a lot of private arrangements that can help. Of course, in principle, I think uh, you could have a central bank uh, uh, innovations that would be stabilizing. And uh, David mentioned, again, this example of the uh, Fed using the interest rate it pays on individual master accounts to combat financial disintermediation. But I'm not I'm just not very confident in that. And I'll give you a reason, David, and everybody else. Um, on paper, you know, it's easy to show how these things can be done. Heck, I've shown how private banking systems can be perfectly stable. Big deal. But <laughs> take this case. You're talking about master accounts, one purpose of which is to give the unbanked access to low-cost, safe media. And I don't think that it would go over well for the Fed to say, okay, the first thing that happens in a crisis is we're going to pay negative interest rates on those accounts, which is going to be very regressive for precisely those people. But let me give you an empirical example. If you look into the postal saving system, turns out that in that history, their interest rate policies were terribly counter-cyclical. And they had just the problem we're describing where just when the private banking system could least afford it, there was a tendency for people to switch all their money into the postal savings system. What kept it from being a real disaster was limitations on the total amounts that could be put there. So I would look at that history, think about the political economy, and then worry about whether the theoretical solution, David, that you mentioned is one that could be relied upon in practice. 
I want to bring Jesus in uh, and staying with this subject. Do you see any uh, ideal ways, Jesus, uh, to guard against destabilizing effects of CBDCs on the banking system? George just mentioned quantity restrictions on retail balances. Uh, uh, David has talked about price restrictions. Where do you fall in this debate? And uh, be sure to unmute. I think you're muted. So my, my view on this debate is very influenced by the European experience since 1945 to today, in the sense that again and again, every time we created this type of uh, policies, the political process end up capturing them. So for instance, uh, the Central Bank of France steer credit from 1945 to around 1980 to favor um, uh, political outcomes. The... Um, saving and loans, the cajas in a lot of European countries also steer both deposits and credits and loans towards their favorite uh, political outcomes. The ECB is already playing with this, with the refinancing operations. For instance, if you um, refinance yourself through the ECB and you give a lot of money to uh, inclusive firms, you get a little bit of a better interest rates that you don't. So my view is that as soon as we open the door a little bit, even as David is suggesting, um, what you are going to end up having is that the policymakers are going to take advantage of that uh, possibility to go after their favorite political uh, objectives. And in that sense, can we really keep the door just a little bit open, maybe imposing a limit of $1,000 on those deposits? Perhaps my negative perspective is that once you open it uh, and you say, well, let's do it with one up to $1,000, up to $5,000, uh, and people say, oh, this works perfectly fine, there's not a big deal, those are going to be removed. So I'm thinking about the slippery slope argument. And before you realize, and I, I perfectly know how it's going to happen, right? this is not going to be, oh, we hate a company A's. What you are going to do is you are going to say, if you are a company who accomplishes goals in terms of diversity and gender inclusion, we are going to give you 25 basis points less. And if you are a company who accomplishes CO2 reductions of more than 10%, we are going to give you 25% basis points less. And if you are a company who accomplishes a better uh, balance of work and life and family, we are going to give you 25 basis points less of interest rates. And before you realize the Fed or whoever is running this thing is deciding how we are going to allocate funds in the economy and we are going to have tremendous distortions and next thing you know, you have countries like Spain or France with industries that are completely unsuited for the comparative advantages of the country. And in that sense, I find it very, very difficult. Once you have opened the door, I find it very difficult to close it. And uh, thank you, Jesus. And, and to, to Dong, a question that a user asks, do you see a risk of a stable coin that pegs a specific price do you see a risk uh, that could arise, a stability risk perhaps, when that price is broken from the target by those with enough resources to break the peg? The question here, uh, the questioner is asking about George Soros and the British pound on Black Wednesday. Uh, do you see that as a salient um, uh, concern here with a, uh, with a stable coin? So I, I th you know, we 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 think that you know, based on the history of uh, countries' fixed exchange rates, even uh, you know, currency boards and all that, uh, there are always you know historical episodes of con crisis confidence, 
uh, because you know these these packs require a lot of discipline. Uh, so you know, in the case of a stable coin, global stable coin, uh, even if you have, first of all, you have to have very transparent governance rules to let investors know uh, that these are you know extremely well managed uh, uh, funds. Uh, you know, whatever is committed is actually the case. You can have an audit, transparent audit process, but there may be operational failures. So if the, you know if one part of the ecosystem fails, then the shocks can be transmitted, and that could sort of cause uh, panics. Whether that would lead to a potential depack uh, uh, of the of the issuer, so that can be self-justifying or self-fulfilling panics, and these have happened in the past in history. So you know what is important is that we have to have a very transparent governance rules, there are regulatory requirements that are met uh, if these uh, stable coins uh, are to maintain their credibility. Thank you. Um, we are just at our time for the panel, so I think we're gonna leave it at that. Uh, thank you to our speakers um, for, uh, for your presentations and for the discussion. Uh, thank you to our audience for joining us this afternoon. There will be a 15 minute break and then we will come back uh, at 3.30 Eastern uh, with a panel on digital currency and financial inclusion. Uh, thanks again to, uh, to Jesus, to George, to David and Dong uh, and we'll uh, see you around, thanks.